The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Well, here we are this morning. Uh, We're in Leviticus 16, and we'll be covering these verses before us. Uh, The sermon title this morning, if you haven't picked up on the theme quite yet from our liturgy this morning, is simply going to be titled, Nothing But the Blood. There's a lot of concentration on what is going on for the atonement being made for sinners through the blood of the sacrifices that are being talked about in this chapter. If you want to summarize this chapter, Leviticus chapter 16, into a single sentence, it looks like this. By the sacrifice of another, you could say through the atoning sacrifice or through the blood sacrifice of another, we sinners have assurance that full atonement has been made for all our sin. If you're writing that down and you want to underline maybe two words in this main idea, the words I would encourage you to concentrate on are this idea of assurance. We can have assurance that full atonement has been made for three-letter word, all, all our sin. The day of atonement was a day set aside so that in the normal run-a-mill life for an Israelite in this time, there were various sacrifices and offerings being made for sins committed or things omitted in their lives, but inevitably what would happen is someone would be unclean, someone would commit a sin that they may not know or see or recognize, and so one time a year, a day was set aside so that all sin of all people could be atoned for, and the people would have assurance that through the blood of that sacrifice, all sins have been forgiven and removed." If you know anything about the Old Testament, you will know that oftentimes um, a word that is used for the first five books of the Bible is a word called the Pentateuch. It's just literally a word that means five books. Those first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. Leviticus is that middle book. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the pinnacle, the middle, the emphasis book in the Pentateuch is the book of Leviticus itself. But even within the book of Leviticus, the way that Moses wrote this book down, you find something at the middle of that book. You start off with the various rituals that were to be obeyed and adhered to by the people of God. Then you zoom in a little bit more in the book of Leviticus. And on either side of this chapter, what you have are rules containing to the priests of God. Then you go in a little bit more and then you have laws pertaining to cleanliness and the people of God. And then right smack dab in the middle of Leviticus, in the middle of the Pentateuch, you have this particular day, this particular chapter. It's designed this way to emphasize something for us, that what is taking place in Leviticus chapter 16 is not nothing. It's something. It's the height. It's the pinnacle. It's the pay attention, scoot forward in the edge of your seat, turn on your ears and listen kind of importance that is going on in Leviticus 16. And so my hope and my prayer is that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart as I 
preach this word to us this morning, it would pierce our hearts to see the glorious good news that by the sacrifice of another, you and I, sinners, can have full assurance of full atonement made for all our sins. Is that not good news, saints? And we're going to find it from bulls and goats this morning here in Leviticus 16. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what Jesus talked about in Luke 24, how all the Old Testament points forward to him. And that's what we're going to see this morning here in Leviticus 16. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do that, okay? Father, we understand these words are your words to your people. We understand, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, that when Moses was recording these words, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit speaking through these words before us this morning. This is God's message for God's people. My aim is to be an instrument in your hands to proclaim the glories of the gospel glories found in the day of atonement. Lord, if the hearts of my brothers and sisters and friends in front of me are anything like my heart, my heart can grow cold to the glories of Calvary. Our hearts can become hardened to the gospel. So my prayer this morning is that you, Holy Spirit, would do the awesome, amazing, glorious, gracious, merciful, good work of wowing us with the gospel, amazing us with the good news that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice who marched into the Holy of Holies and once and for all made the final full forever sacrifice so that by the shedding of his blood, That blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins can and has cleansed us from all, all, all our sin. Lord, buckle our knees this morning at the gracious good news of what you accomplished at the cross. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Roll this question around in your, in your mind. Because I think if you can roll this question around in your mind, wrap, wrap your mind around this question, you're going to be getting at, I think, what the goal of a text like Leviticus 16 is meant to be. You and I were new covenant men and women. This was written to an old covenant people. Oftentimes we can read this and be like, yeah, I don't know if I need to know about the blood of bulls and goats. This seems a little weird and a little arcane and a little antiquated and a little not important to me. But what's amazing is that when you begin to read a a chapter like this, you begin to see that the goal of this chapter like this is to truly bring assurance. And so a question I have for us this morning is this, have you ever wondered, have you ever found yourself doubting, ruminating, rolling around in your mind if all your sins have been forgiven? Have you ever found yourself with your head on your pillow at night contemplating, man, that one sin that continually nags at me, like is Jesus 
really forgiven me, forgive me of that sin? Like conjure up maybe in your mind like the most terrible sin that you've ever committed. The temptation was before you. You had the clear choice to trust Christ is better. The temptation in front of you was Jesus is actually not better than fill in the blank. And in the moment you bought the lie and you believed this thing is better than Jesus. And it was not good. It was iniquity. It was sin. Your most terrible sin, think of your mind. Now, I'm not saying that you are doubting the fact that God forgives sin, but what I'm saying is maybe there's those times, those moments in our lives where we wrestle with, man, has, has God forgiven me of this sin? What about that one sin in your past which continually nags at and eats at your assurance of forgiveness? You might say with your mouth, yes, Jesus forgives sin, but there's that little dark corner of your heart, your mind, where you're like, yeah, but I struggle to believe maybe he's forgiven me for that sin. Or what about maybe not a sin in your past? You're like, man, like I've got ongoing sin. Like I've got present tense kind of stuff in my life. What about those ongoing sins in your present tense which produce low-grade anxiety because you struggle to believe that a holy God would be willing to forgive you of this particular sin, fill in the blank. You see, I think a chapter like Leviticus 16 gives us answers to those kinds of questions. So if you've ever found yourself wondering if all your sins, all your sins, even the most terrible ones in the past, the most terrible ones that are just running rampant in your life right now in the present, if you've ever wondered if all of them are really, truly forgiven at the cross, then what I'm telling you is Leviticus chapter 16 is for you this morning. It's a highly pertinent chapter sitting right here at the center of God's law we not only find a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin, we see that repeatedly throughout. God is holy, he can have nothing to do with unholiness. He is pure, he can have nothing to do with sin. These are true attributes of our living God. But what we also simultaneously find in a chapter like Leviticus 16 is a compassionate God, a very gracious God who delights to cleanse and forgive us from what chat, verse 30 tells us is all our sins. I'm thankful for little words in the Bible, aren't you? Little words like A-L-L, all. All in this instance means all. Not all but that one. Not all but that thing in the past. All sins can be cleansed and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Remember, what we're going to discover in the text this morning before us is that by the sacrifice of another, by the blood of another, by the substitute of another, sinners like you, sinners like this preacher right here, you, me, we have the assurance that full atonement, 100% atonement, has been made for all our sin. You see, this chapter is about the Day of Atonement. It's a day that the Jewish people called Yom Kippur. If you've heard that, you might even see it sometimes on your calendar if you've got the kind of calendar that marks out holidays. When you see Yom Kippur, that's the Hebrew transliteration for this particular day. They're talking about Leviticus 16 when you hear or see Yom Kippur being talked about. It's a bloody day filled with various sacrifices designed to make atonement for 
for sin. And as we're going to see, this day of atonement is a day which ultimately points beyond itself to that Good Friday, that first Good Friday, that ultimate day of atonement that is centered on Jesus Christ crucified. So where do we begin in Leviticus 16? We begin in verse 1. And so what we are going to see is that we're going to begin by recognizing that point number one, we cannot draw near to a holy God however we want to. We cannot draw near to a holy God however we want to. We see this in verses 1 through 10. In your copy of Scripture, start there in verse 1. Notice what we read. The Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses after the death of of the two sons of Aaron. So this chapter has specific links to what Pastor John Kleinschmidt preached to us a couple of weeks ago out of Leviticus chapter 10. And that's where we saw the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, you need to go tell Aaron, your brother, do not come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. Why? So that he, Aaron, may not die. The implication is like his two sons. For, he says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. As we've said before, when you think of our living God, Yahweh himself, what you need to conjure up in your mind is the idea of a king. Yahweh is heaven's high king. And the tent of meeting, this worship place, this meeting place where God meets with man and man comes to meet with God, this is Yahweh's throne room. And just like an earthly king's throne room has to be entered with the utmost respect, so entering the heavenly king's throne room required even more care. You can't just march into the presence of the king willy-nilly, haphazard. Nadab and Abihu tried it, and what happened to them? They were killed. Fire from the Lord came out and consumed them. They learned the lesson this hard lesson that if you approach God in ways that you think are right for you, but not according to what God says, you are approaching him in an unauthorized way and it will end in death for you. The lesson to be learned from chapter 10 and its connection to where we are right now in chapter 16 is this, you and I cannot draw near to a holy God however we want to. It's not up to us to decide, I think I can approach him according to these sets of rules and the ways that God has commanded. Now, the problem is many in our world live this way. Many in our world labor under the false belief that they will be able to stand, enter before, into the presence of a holy God and do so however they want. The day will arrive when they die physically here on earth. And Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, after death comes judgment, they're going to stand before God. And if you talk to this coworker, this neighbor, this family member, this friend, or whoever it might be, if you talk to them, you will learn that their hope is that their good works are going to outweigh the bad, that their morality, their spirituality, their religiosity, all of these works will mean something before God and be enough to punch their ticket 
to an eternal life. What they're doing is they're pulling a Nadab and Abihu in that moment. They're saying, I am telling God what I believe should be good enough for me to be in his presence. And they're going to go before a holy, living, pure, righteous God and be met with not the welcome of this God, but with the wrath of God like Nadab and Abihu found out when they took it upon themselves to say, I know what God has said, but comma, I will enter before him in the way that I feel is okay, good, and right. But like Nadab and Abihu, for those who approach God in this way, according to their own design, according to their own ideas, they're going to find wrath and not welcome. Why? Why are they going to find wrath and not his welcome? Because they simply did not take Yahweh at his word. I know what John talked about a couple weeks ago when Nadab and Abihu came before a holy God. This wasn't the capricious actions of a malicious dictator. He just felt like smiting someone today. Boom, scorches and incinerates them with fire for no big reason. No, his holiness means something. And in his holiness, Leviticus 16 is opening up by telling us that this holy God who can have nothing to do with sin is in his grace, is in his kindness, is in his mercy, actually saying, listen, because my holiness means sinfulness cannot be in my presence, I'm actually telling you what it can and should and ought to look like for you to be in my presence. I have provided a way if you will adhere to this way and obey this way and lean into this way. Take me at my word. If you decide to not take me at my word, it will end in death for you. But if you take me at my word, it will end in life for you. We are not to approach the holy God in a haphazard way or in any old way that suits us. We must enter Yahweh's presence in his way. And that's what you see there in verses 3 through 5. Our living God is holy, holy, holy. And he's to be revered as such. Thus Yahweh speaks, verse 3, saying to Moses, this is what you need to tell Aaron, in this way, Aaron, in this way, in my gracious, kind, merciful way, this is how you are to approach me, come into the holy place. Don't do what your sons did. They decided to go their own way. Don't go their own way, death. Go my way, life. Then notice in verses 3 through 10, all the uses of the word shall that are just dotted all over the place. Verse 3, this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Verse 4, shall put on the holy linen coat, shall have a linen undergarment, shall tie the linen sash, shall bathe his body, shall take from the congregation, shall offer the bowl over and over and over and over and over again. What is all the shalls? All the shalls are God saying, I'm showing you the path of grace. I'm showing you the path of mercy. I'm showing you the way that leads to life. I'm showing you the way that does not lead to death. You can either listen, obey, adhere, and enter into the grace and no life, or you can go your own 
way and no death. That's what's going on here. Twelve different times the Lord God is giving Aaron specific directions about what he shall do on the Day of Atonement so that he might know life. And so what Aaron does is he didn't get to come into Yahweh's presence, naming his demands, imposing his opinions. Yeah, yeah, I know about the bulls and the goats, Yahweh, but I want to come in my way. And that's the hubris of man. That's the pride of man. There's a reason why many say sin is the pride that is the epicenter of all other sins. Because we say in our heart and believe in our mind, I know what he says, but I think I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that's the wide path, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. No, Aaron came recognizing that those who draw near to God, they need atonement made for their sins. Like he's taking Yahweh at his word. Yahweh's saying, you want to be in my presence. Here's the gracious path laid open for you. You need to have your sins atoned for, covered, rubbed out, wiped away, made clean. This is why you get into all the language there of bulls and goats for sin offerings, rams for burnt offerings, ceremonial washings, right? He's taking off his clothes, he's washing his body, he's putting on linen clothes, like all of this stuff. We've talked about this now for, for several weeks. All of these things, when you tie them all together, the rams, the goats, the bulls, the washings, these are all various elements of a particular ceremony which are saying something. They're actions that are speaking a message to us. And what they are saying is this, Aaron cannot come before God like he is. The people of God cannot enter into his presence like they are. If he does so, if they do so, there will be death. Therefore, what Aaron needs is a solution outside of himself. He needs someone to make him clean, to make him pure, to make him right so he can stand before a holy God, and draw near to him. Aaron knows this to be true, and so what he knows is point number two is that by the blood of another, God is providing atonement for sin. Like he's believing this. I need the blood of a sacrifice in my place to wash me so that I can stand before my God. Thus, Aaron takes Yahweh at his word. He obeys him. And what does he obey? He's going to obey the commands that we see starting off in verse 11. Look there in your copy of Scripture. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself. Right? Yahweh said, take a bowl, offer it as a sin offering. And so Aaron is he's going to do this. It's going to make atonement for not just you, but for all your house. He shall kill the bull. That's blood language there. As a sin offering for himself. Scan down to verse 14. Look at verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall kill the goat. That's blood language of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Notice in these middle verses, verses 11 through 28, blood is everywhere. It's being sprinkled everywhere. It's being slaughtered everywhere. The day of atonement was a bloody ordeal. And that's extremely intentional is what you need to know on the part of God. 
If you were to scan over into the next chapter, Leviticus 17, Leviticus 17 talks about the places of sacrifice and the laws as it relates to blood. And what you read in verse 11 of Leviticus 17, it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, listen, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In God's economy... The way God works in bringing about atonement, cleansing, the purifying, the washing away of our sins so that we can stand before a holy God, he decided and declared it will and shall be done through blood. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. You can say it's the atoning blood. It's the sacrificial blood that makes atonement for the life of a sinner by God's design. When you read things like this, again, wrap your mind around this. We, in the century, in the day, in the year, the month we live in, we read this and we're like, man, I just don't get it. Why the blood? But what you need to know is that in God's economy, by his design, the most powerful sin-scrubbing detergent, if you want to use that language, the detergent that has the power to scrub our sin away, wash it away, is blood. Blood. That's the sin-scrubbing detergent we need as men and women unholy, as men and women impure, unclean. We need the atoning blood of a sacrifice to make atonement for us so that we might be holy, so that we might be pure and clean before God. Sin pollutes. Sin is the spiritual mud that infiltrates every single corner of your soul. Sin stains. It's that indelible stain. No amount of Tide Pods or Dawn Dish Soap is going to get the stain of sin out. We need a more powerful sin-scrubbing agent applied to our soul. It taints sin taints all that we do to the point that Isaiah the prophet says even our righteous deeds, our righteous acts, those acts that are truly good are like filthy rags before a holy God because even our sin taints goodness. We need our sin to be atoned for. Thus, the need for atoning blood to come and rub off sin's pollution, to wipe it away and cleanse us from sin. And for the Israelites, their place of worship needed atonement made for it. The people needed atonement made for them. And you read here that Aaron is even sacrificing stuff for him and his sons because he, the priest, even needs atonement made for him. He's a sinner in need of this atonement. So what does God do? God commands Aaron to give offerings sacrificial so the blood would make atonement. He brings a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself, Aaron does. Then for the sins of the people, Aaron goes and brings two goats. He brings those goats before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and these two goats would make atonement for the whole nation in a very special way. One Goat, there would be two, there'd be uh, lots would be cast over these two goats, and in this way, one would be chosen to live, and then the other one would be chosen to die. One would be offered on the altar as a sacrifice, 
and one is going to be released alive out into the wilderness. This is unique to Leviticus 16. You don't see this kind of action taking place only but on this day of atonement. And together through the death of the one goat and the living but moving out into the wilderness of the other goat, these two goats make atonement for all the people, it says. One goat was killed as a substitute for all their sins, it says there in verse 15. With this sacrifice, blood shed on their behalf, that goat is dying in their place. That goat's innocent. That goat didn't sin against the Lord, but that goat is dying as a substitute sacrifice in our place. So you're sitting there. We covered all this when we covered Leviticus 1. Remember this? You're meant there to hear the sounds and see the death and see the blood pouring out and to see that offering made on the bronze altar out in the courtyard. And you're meant to draw one conclusion, the death of that animal should have been my death. But in my place condemned, this animal stands. It's telling me that I need someone else to die in my place if I'm going to have any hope of life with a holy God. But as this first goat dies, as the sacrifice, as the sin offering for the people, the people could rest assured my sins have been atoned for. But then they were to look at the bleeding and hear the bleeding of this other goat, not going to die, but going to live. And with this other goat, what you find is a most beautiful picture of not sin just forgiven, but sin and the freedom we can find from sin. They're going to see not just sin atoned for, but they're going to see sin and the picture of sin and how it's removed from us by the sacrifice of another. If you read, for with the live goat, Aaron, what would he do? He would come to that live goat. He would lay both his hands on the head of the goat and then confess over the goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. If you look there in that verse, the word iniquities, the word transgressions, the word sins, this is all the different words that you can find in Hebrew talking about our offenses, our treasonous rebellion against God. Before God, they are considered iniquities. They're considered transgressions, considered sins. And what Aaron is doing with his live goat as he's placing his hand on the head of the goat and he is confessing before the Lord all of the sins, the sins that we know, the sins that we don't know, all iniquities, all transgressions, all sins. He's placing them on the head of the goat and what he's doing is he's shifting blame in that moment. He is taking the blame that rightly belongs to the people and he's putting it on this animal so that in a symbolic way the people can stand back and see that what we deserve, the blame that is right for us to own because after all, we're the ones who've committed these iniquities and transgressions and sin against God. They're being removed from me and they're being placed on another who's going to bear my blame in my place. That's what they were meant to see in this moment. Aaron is putting the sin of God's people on this goat of removal. That's what that word Azazel means. Some of your translations have the word scapegoat. Yeah? In your Bibles, you've heard that word before in common conversation. If someone is a scapegoat, it's someone who bears the blame for something they did not do. If you're like, I don't know if I've ever seen this before. If you've ever grown up with siblings or if you're a parent raising kids, you know what a scapegoat is. Sorry, kids, I'm going to use your names here. Not that you've done this. 
It's when little Johnny comes in, covered with a Sharpie marker and Sharpie marker all over the wall, and it's obvious that he's the one that does it, but it's like, little Johnny, why did you do this? And he's like, it wasn't me, it is him. He points over to Judah. What's he trying to do right there? He's trying to make Judah the scapegoat. He's going to take the blame for this, even though you're the one caught black-handed, so to speak, in this instance, because you've got the Sharpie all over you. That's what's going on there. That's what a scapegoat is. It's someone or something that bears the blame, even though it is innocent. So with the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, the idea is that the burden and penalty of the Israelite sin was taken off their shoulders and placed onto this particular goat. And in doing this, the scapegoat bore the blame for their sin. So as they watched the goat, so just imagine you're an Israelite. You're sitting here on the Day of Atonement. The high priest can go into the Holy of Holies on this single day alone to make atonement for all sin. He's had his sin atoned for through the blood sacrifices for him, and now he's doing the sacrifices for us. The first goat dead. Man, my sin has been atoned for. My sin has been forgiven. And now what I'm doing is I'm watching him put his head on a, on a goat, and that goat's going to turn around, and he's going to be led outside the camp. He's going to be led outside the tabernacle, outside the camp, out into the wilderness. And as I see this thing fading off into the distance, I'm meant to draw a single conclusion. My sin has been removed from me just like that goat has been removed from out of my presence. And as far as that goat has been removed, never to return anymore, so it is true that when I look to God by faith, trusting in the provision of his blood sacrifice for the atonement of my sin, my sin has been removed like that goat's been removed from the camp. That is the kind of picture that is being painted with the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. So as they watch the goat on whom their sin was placed disappear into the wilderness, never to return. Never to return. The Israelites were to understand the unmerited favor of God's forgiveness that brought them freedom. Then you jump into Psalm 103. And the words of King David become very, very sweet when David captures this very idea in Psalm 103 when he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Do you think in Leviticus 16, the people were being dealt with according to their sins the way they deserve? They weren't. They were being met with the mercy and grace of a God. Nor does Yahweh repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And here it is. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he, there's the scapegoat language, remove our transgressions from us, removed from us. So if you could like modernize it a little bit, you set your sins in some kind of rocket and then you set the rocket to point due east and you just shoot it off and it shoots off into the atmosphere and it's just going 
and going and going, breaks the atmosphere, it's shooting off in outer space, it's going. Then you go to the other side of the earth and you set a rocket on that side and you shoot it off in the exact polar opposite direction, dead west, and it shoots off, breaks the atmosphere and goes. And it can go billions of years and light years into uh, the universe as we know it and as far as the east is from the west. That is what is meant to be conjured up your mind. That is what's going on when you look to God's provision of a blood sacrifice in your place. You can have the assurance that that kind of distance is how far your sins, all your sins, have been removed from you. I can't fathom that. I think there's a reason why heaven is going to be an infinite amount of infinities because you're never going to wake up like on infinity plus one and be like, well, I got that one figured out. Next, what are we going to do here? Got this Jesus thing cracked. Never going to happen. You're going to wake up on day infinity plus affinity plus affinity, and you're just going to be like, I can't fathom what it took for when Christ went to the cross to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, to bear our blame, so that these kind of things could be said to be true about me, transgressions removed from us. You see, with the Day of Atonement, God's people were to draw this singular conclusion, point and final number three. We have assurance that full atonement has been made for all of our sins. You see, when these kind of things come home to roost and they concretize in your soul, solidify that by the blood sacrifice, a substitute in my place, my sin has been atoned for, my sin has been removed, the idea is that your soul would then rest in assurance that full atonement has been made for all your sins, even that dark sin, even that sin you struggle with. Even that sin, that really evil, awful, terrible sin that you committed in the past and the guilt and the shame just come screaming into your head every single night when you lay your head down to go to sleep. All of these things are treasonous, rebellious, idolatrous, not Jesus-loving ways. All? all? A-L-L, all forgiven? We have that kind of assurance that the blood of another can do this? Leviticus 16 is saying, yes, breathe deep, fall, collapse into this good news, because that is exactly what Leviticus 16 is saying. Look at verse 30. Zero in on verse 30. Look at the language of verse 34. On this day, what day? The day of atonement. Atonement shall shall be made for you to cleanse you. Second sentence, verse 30, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Friends, this verse, verse 30, is loaded with promise language. The promise language. And what's the promise? You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats? Why? Because of rituals? Religious in nature, performed by you and me? No, because with the heart of faith, we are trusting in God's provision of atonement. It's not because of religious rituals that you or I have assurance of full atonement. No, that is not what we are to see in Leviticus 16. The blood of a substitute sacrifice has been shed for the forgiveness of my sin. That's my assurance. All my sin has been transferred to the scapegoat and been removed from me. This is my assurance. The sacrifice of another in my place has satisfied God's justice. Thus, he has declared me clean. 
I can know mercy because his justice from my sin has been satisfied on the sacrifice from another. And it's right here. It's right there at that point where you can see how the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 punches forward beyond itself into the New Testament and lands on the ultimate Day of Atonement, which was the day Jesus Christ was crucified on that first Good Friday. You see, on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, what does Aaron do? Aaron the high priest offered the blood of animals in order to purify the people of their sin. But what the Israelites would quickly learn is what the author of the Hebrews would tell us, that it is impossible, impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. can't be done. The evidence of this would be found in the fact that the very next day after the Day of Atonement, what do they have to do? What do they have to do? Offer more what? Sacrifices for sin. More blood of more bulls and more goats. All offerings in the sacrificial system thus points forward to this one truth. What we need, what sinners need, is a final and forever sacrifice that can fully atone for our sin once for all. And the writer, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says that's exactly what happened on that day of atonement known as Good Friday when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. For, the author says, when Jesus entered into the heavenly throne room itself, he went there to atone for sin. He says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which is what Aaron was always doing, which are copies of the true things, but Jesus entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, just like Aaron. And he did so entering once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So as it is through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, he, Jesus, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Thus, Jesus is the better high priest and Jesus is the better sacrifice for his blood provides the full and final atonement we need. You're meant to look into Aaron in Leviticus 16 and say, man, we really need a better Aaron, don't we? Not one who could just walk into the copies of things, but who can walk into the actual holy of holies himself. You're meant to look at that first goat that was sacrificed as a sin offering and say, man, I I see what is being painted here and what it's pointing to, but we need more than just the blood of a goat. We need the blood of a full and final perfect sacrifice that can actually accomplish what that sin offering is pointing forward to. And your mind has been to punch forward, and Jesus is that better sacrifice. But not only that, you're also to see that Jesus is the better scapegoat. For even though Jesus committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth, perfectly innocent, just like that scapegoat. Jesus took on himself the burden of our iniquity. Jesus took on himself the blame we deserve, bearing it himself. And what did he do? He removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. He did that for those who come to him in faith. The prophet Isaiah tells us Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has, here it is, laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Leviticus 16 language. Truly, truly, Jesus himself, here's Leviticus 16 language, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And like the scapegoat that bore all of Israel's iniquities on itself to a remote area, the author of Hebrews also says, so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Have you ever wondered about the importance of even where Jesus was crucified? He wasn't crucified in the city. He was crucified outside the camp, you could say. To be crucified on the hill Golgotha is to be crucified, moved out beyond the realm of the gate, beyond the city, just like the scapegoat had to be moved outside the camp so that our sin could be removed. Friends, the day of atonement finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The day of atonement has been accomplished at the cross by his sacrifice. By his sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus, our great high priest, made full atonement for all our sin possible. The question is, has that atonement, has that atonement been made for you? How can I know this? How can I know that that atonement has been made for me? Did you remember what Aaron had to do to the scapegoat? What did he have to do? He came over to the scapegoat, he put his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and what did he do? He had to confess. Confess. He had to own, we have sinned against you, God. We are the ones who deserve the blame. We are the ones who deserve the wrath. But I'm confessing, God, I need you to intervene so that someone else might satisfy your justice. And I'm putting my hands on your head and confessing. And the question is, have you ever confessed? Come to the Lord Jesus and said, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. You have no other hope for the atonement for your sin. It is only found in Christ alone. That's why we sing songs like in Christ alone. Do you remember those verses? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Why was he scorned? He was scorned like the scapegoat shoved out in the wilderness to die not because he deserved it, but because our sin was placed on him. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Why? For every sin on him was laid. That's scapegoat language. And now, by faith, we can say, here in the death of Christ, I live. Why are you alive in Christ right now? Why are you alive in Christ right now? You are alive in Christ right now because his death accomplished something for you. Because by faith, you're looking to the cross and saying, when Jesus died on the cross, 
He was dying as the scapegoat. And I am looking to Christ in that moment to be the one who bore my wrath, who bore my shame, who bore my guilt, who bore my sin, who bore my iniquities, who bore my transgressions, who bore my lust, who bore my lying, who bore my hatred, who bore my murderous thoughts, who bore my gossip, who bore my pornography looking, who bore my abuse, who bore my oppression, who bore my injustice. So in that moment, all of this was placed on him so that in his death, he could burst out of the grave and say, it's removed. It's gone. It's forgiven. And if you come to me and you trust in me and you look to me, you can know that forgiven freedom found in Christ alone. That is why it is good news that for every sin on him was laid. And now here in the death of Christ, I live. Praise God for the scapegoat. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to do great things. Lord, there was a lot of information there, and I understand, and it probably was very new for many of us, just having never really thought about these things. But Lord, I'm going to trust that somewhere in the midst of it all, you, you, Lord Jesus, can bring one truth to bear on our heart, one truth to bear on our mind. And so I'm asking you, Jesus, to do this just now. Would you do it just now? Lord, would you prove yourself faithful to wow us with the gospel as I prayed earlier? If that is the takeaway, that man, my heart has been wowed. It truly is good that he is the scapegoat. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, that is a good and right response. Lord, whatever the response is that you're laying on our hearts, would you make it? Would you make it? Bring it about that we would walk in obedience to you. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.